Well, did you know that early Christian worship always happened around a dinner table? Did you know that? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 the instructions around this meal. We kind of call it now the Lord's Supper and Communion, but back then in the first century, it was a full meal. They called it the agape feast, or for those of you who know the Greek, the love feast. And early Christians would gather around a table together, and they would eat together, and they would celebrate communion, and they would sing and pray. Someone would read the scripture, and someone would expound upon it. That was biblical preaching. And over time, throughout the first century, Tertullian and Hippolytus and other church fathers tell us that that this love feast, this early Christian worship that Paul instructs us about in, in 1 Corinthians 11 would become a picture of what the church would do when they gathered together. They would gather around a family table, brothers and sisters in Christ, and worship their heavenly Father and celebrate Jesus, the Son of God. So here's what we're going to do over the next five weeks. We're going to take some of the instructions from the Scripture, and you and I together are going to learn how we interact as a family. We're going to talk about the recipe for a healthy church, and we're going to talk about what it means to come to the family table together as worshipers, together as sons and daughters of the King. And lift him high. Sound good? Let's pray together. God, we love you today. We praise you today. You are Heavenly Father. You are exalted over all. Just as we sang, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place to come and speak and exhort and convict and confront if needed be. And comfort. God, we know that you are here but we invite you to be active in our hearts. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a home where family dinners, family meals were important. Uh, Sometimes it was a hot pocket before I headed off to soccer practice, and sometimes it was a little bit more of a production than that. My mom actually was a great cook and still is a great cook. And my dad is a really great cook. He's, uh, he's got a meat smoker the size of a refrigerator in his backyard. It's awesome. And so we would gather around a family table and, 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 and eat together as a family. And any time that I did something kind of out of the ordinary, like let's say I belched at the table, which didn't happen very often. That's a lie. It happened all the time. Let's say I belched at the table. Let's say I slurped my soup. Let's say I chewed with my mouth open. What would my mom say to me? Mind your manners, right? So it should not surprise us that much of the New Testament reads like a list of table manners. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about table manners. We're talking about the simple kind of rules and regulations, the simple principles that will help you and I extract maximum life and nourishment out of these gatherings when we gather at God's family table. And and perhaps just as importantly, we're talking about the simple kind of rules and regulations and principles that will help us not distract others. Because you know what? If I chew with my mouth open, does that mean I lack nourishment and I'm not getting the nourishment I need? No. But it might mean my, my brother puts his fork down and goes, I'm not eating anymore. That's disgusting. 
So that's what we're trying to do too. We're trying to prevent ourselves from distracting others as well as we, as we gather at God's family table. And it's interesting because the early church really needed kind of a list of table manners that they were all operating from the same principles. And the reason why shows up in Acts chapter 2. So let's rewind and remember what happened that Jesus died. He was resurrected and 40 days later ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And he told his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for me there and I will descend on you the Holy Spirit that's my presence with you through my spirit will descend on you there and empower you so here's what they do they go to Jerusalem and they wait just like Jesus told them and there wasn't 12 disciples at the time there were more than that more Jesus followers about 100 120 so they go to Jerusalem and they wait in this upper room and that's what happens the spirit descends and empowers them to preach the gospel they preach the gospel and a lot of people become followers of Jesus that day they become followers of the way. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 2 verse 9, who all was there in Jerusalem and that became part of this movement that they didn't even call Christianity at the time. They just called it the way. Here's what Luke says in Acts chapter 2 verse 9. He says that there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, that's actually pronounced Cyrene, not Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. Two things that I want you to notice from this passage. First is that there are both Jews and proselytes there in Jerusalem. So what I want you to know is the Jews, they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were worshipers of Yahweh, full-blooded members of God's covenant community from the Old Testament. The proselytes, however, that was a different group of people. Those were non-Jews, what the Bible calls Gentiles. Those were people who were not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they had said, wow, this Yahweh, he deserves ultimate worship. I'm going to convert to Judaism. And so they began to follow the Mosaic law. They began to uh, abide by the dietary restrictions that the Old Testament stipulates. The men even got circumcised. And they were all together there at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. It's a Jewish holiday. All there in Jerusalem together, sacrificing together. So you've got old schoolers, the Jews. And then you've got Gentiles who are converts. That's kind of the new schoolers, okay? So you've got those two groups. The second thing that this passage tells us is that there were people from all different tongues and backgrounds and ethnicities. You don't have to memorize all these things. They're all around Jerusalem. These regions were all around Jerusalem. North Africa, modern-day Iran, Iraq, Turkey, all different places all around. And all of them had their own culture, their own background, their own language, Fast forward 20 years, the apostles were scattered around the region because of uh, persecution. They had left Jerusalem, and they began preaching the gospel all around the region. And Gentiles, who had not actually converted to Judaism ever, they didn't know much about this Yahweh thing, and they certainly hadn't converted, they began to convert to the way too. They began to accept Jesus as their Savior and say yes to him. And so what you had was the old schoolers, the Jews, you had the new schoolers, the Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, and you had people who had not gone to school at all. <laughs> These Gentiles that grew up in pagan homes and pagan backgrounds and secular culture that didn't know really anything about God, they were like, man, I'm following this Jesus guy. I'm going to repent and believe. 
So here's what the early church looked like 20 years after Pentecost. A couple things. They had gone through rapid growth. They had gone through rapid growth. Remember that there was 120 disciples at Pentecost. The Spirit descended on them. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 came to Christ that day. But interesting, because literature of antiquity typically does not count women and children. Because back then, because of paterfamilias, they didn't really count for anything. So when Luke tells us in Acts that 3,000 people came to Christ, it's likely about 3,000 men. That means about 7,500, 8,000 people, give or take. 20 years down the road, this thing had spread like a bad rash all over the Roman Empire. There's Christians everywhere. They had infiltrated everywhere. And in 20 years, this thing is just blown up like crazy. They had gone through rapid, rapid growth. Second thing that had happened was that it was a spiritual mosaic. Remember, old schoolers, new schoolers, and no school at all. People from religious backgrounds, people who had descended from Abraham, tribe of Judah, tribe of Benjamin, Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and then to Christianity, they were all gathered at God's table, and Gentiles who had no idea about any of this Abraham stuff, they were all together in one place celebrating and worshiping Jesus together. And it was a multi-ethnic and multilingual community. Remember, all of those people groups that Luke names in Acts chapter 2, 9 through 11, they had their own language, their own ethnic group, their own culture. Now, does that look familiar to you? (laughs) Those of you who have been at Bayview Glen the last few years, in three years, our church has almost tripled in size. Talk about rapid growth. We are a spiritual mosaic. We got people who have been walking with Jesus 80, 90 years. We got people in this place that are like, I don't even know this Jesus dude at all, but I have spiritual questions and I'm checking it out. We got old schoolers, we got new schoolers, we got no school at all. The last time we did a demographic study here, uh, what we learned was that on a typical Sunday morning, there would be over 110 nationalities represented in this place just on a Sunday morning. I didn't even know there were 110 countries, you know, much less that they could all be represented in one place. Over 60 different mother tongues. The great news is about our congregation right now, we begin to ask these questions. How do we interact together? How do we care for one another appropriately? What kind of preaching is helpful? What kind of music is most helpful? How do we treat one another as a community, especially because we're a spiritual mosaic, especially because we have people from every background and tribe and tongue? Here's the great news. The early church had those very same questions. We may not be like the early church in a lot of ways, but at least we're like the early church in that way. We have these questions. And the church began to ask these questions, and an argument came out of that question. Who belongs at our family table? How do we treat one another? How do we interact? And it comes to a head in Acts chapter 15. Look what, ha- look what happens. It says, but some men came down from Judea. These were Jews, and later Luke will tell us they're even Pharisees, the strictest adherents to the law. They come down from Judea to Antioch, where Acts chapter 15 is set, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's what's happening. The strictest adherence to the Jewish law, the Pharisees, the, the, the old schoolers who had converted now to Christianity, and they didn't see themselves as converting to something new, remember? They saw themselves as, you know, saw, they saw Jesus as a fulfillment of something very, very old. So they show up to the Gentiles at Antioch, who are kind of the no school at all folks, and they said to the men, you, in order to follow Jesus, have to be circumcised. Talk about a way to deal with your rapid growth problem, right? Like, 
no. Like new members class, all women and children, the men were in the car. Like we're not doing this, right? And what happens is Paul and Barnabas speak up. Keep going, McKim. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, because remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a strict adherent to the law, but he speaks up and he goes, you know, no, 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 guys. This is not what's going on here. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. We, we, so they have a dissension. They have a debate. They have a disagreement. And so what happens is Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem from Antioch, go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders and talk about this question. Let's figure it out. Who really belongs at this family table? Who can come? We got old school, new school, no school at all. People from every different kind of background. People who worship in different ways. And we're trying to figure this out. We're trying to work this out. Who really belongs here? So Paul and Barnabas do just that. They go back to Jerusalem and all the apostles get together and they begin to talk about this question. And people voice their opinion. People say, well, they should be circumcised. They should have to follow these dietary restrictions. They should have to adhere to the law of Moses. Some people say they should have to adhere to some of it, not all of it. So they're having this conversation. And finally, James speaks up. He stands up and he goes, okay, I think I've heard everything. Let's see if I can wrap it all together in one kind of summary conclusion. And here's what James says. It's Acts chapter 15, verse 19 and 20. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We're going to come back to that. But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Say that one more time because it's critical. Who belongs at our family table? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. You know what's interesting? That James's arguments really, it's really fascinating here because he looks at his Jewish brothers and sisters and he says, you couldn't even obey all the law. How do you expect them to do that? How are you going to hang a yoke of slavery around these Gentiles' necks and prevent them from coming to God through Jesus when you couldn't even obey the law? This is ridiculous. Here's what James is saying to his brothers and sisters. He's saying, at our family table, everyone is welcome. At our family table, everyone is welcome. We are going to remove distractions. We are going to remove hurdles. Anything that might get in somebody's way of coming to God through Jesus and meeting him in a personal way, we're just going to get all that out of the way. Do not hang a yoke of slavery around these Gentiles' necks. We should not prevent them from coming to our family table to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, it's funny to me because the people in the room, I'm sure, were a little uncomfortable. And, and my guess is that for some of you who have been attending church for a long time, when I say, at our family table, everyone is welcome, you might go, oh, ew, ew. You might bristle up against that a little bit. It might kind of make you squirm in your sport coat a little bit, you know. Here's the thing. In my house growing up, my mom and dad are very, very gracious people, fantastic people. And my older brother, my younger sister, we grew up in a house where everyone was welcome at our family table. In fact, my parents kind of kept a guest room open at all times, so anybody at any time was welcome in our house. 
So we have people coming to our home that my sister's friend who was struggling with an eating disorder for a time, friends of mine who are struggling with drug and alcohol abuse or going through divorce or whatever, they were always welcome at our table. They could always find a place to belong in my family. Now, if you ask my parents, do you affirm their lifestyle choice? What do you think my parents would have said? Oh, of course we do. We love drug and alcohol abuse. Of course not. Of course not. They would say, no, certainly we don't, and they know that. But see, here's our thing. Our goal is to make sure that everybody is welcome in our home. Everybody finds a place to belong. Everybody finds a place at this family table. And this is what James is saying to his brothers and sisters. He's saying, get those distractions out of the way. This is a place where all can belong. All can journey with Jesus. All can meet God, no matter what background you come from, no matter how much you know the Bible or how little you know the Bible, regardless of what your kind of spiritual background is or what your even lifestyle looks like. And for those of you in the room that think you ought to speak into somebody else's life about their lifestyle, that is above your pay grade. That's the Spirit's job. Not yours. At our family table, everyone is welcome. Now, this is fascinating to me because watch this. Paul is in the room when James speaks up and he says, look, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Kate Gentiles, don't eat food sacrificed to idols because it might make your Jewish brother stumble. They're going to have a tough time with that. This is why that's fascinating is because Paul goes, yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm in with that. I agree with that. And I'll take that conclusion back to Antioch. That sounds great. Here's why it's crazy. Because in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, you know what? It's not wrong to eat food sacrificed to idols. He says an idol is a no thing. It's, it's like sacrificing something to Cinderella. Like that doesn't exist, right? So this doesn't matter. You eat food sacrificed to idols. Food is amoral. Like eat what you want. So why would Paul say that food sacrificed to idols is not sinful, but you shouldn't eat it because it might cause another brother to stumble? Why would he agree with that? You know why? Because our family table is not about you. Because our family table is not about you. You might have a particular preference. You might have something in mind when you come to the family table. You might have something that, that you know, is, is kind of a preference for you, something that you kind of like. And, and James would say, and Paul would say, and Peter's would say, and the authors of the New Testament would say, well, you know what? Guess what? It's not about you. So put your preferences aside so that you might be able to love someone else in this place and not cause a distraction for them. Let's just talk real frankly, shall we? Because some of us over time have trained our souls to delight in things that aren't God. We've not trained our souls to delight in God. We've trained our souls to delight in things that aren't God. So, a particular music style, that's not God. A particular house light level in this place, that's not God. A particular ministry program, that's not God. A particular preaching style, certainly not God. God has given us 
means of grace, communion, baptism, prayer, music. And we we know that from the New Testament, even in Colossians 1 and Philippians 2, we have early church hymns that they sang together, prayer, things to engage with him in. Those are the staples. Those are the meat and potatoes. We teach and train our soul to delight in God. So when those secondary things shift and change, it doesn't bother us at all. Why? Because I've always just trained my soul to delight in God. When we come into this place, you, you want to you eat at home with your mouth open? <laughs> Feel free. But when, when, we, when we come into this place, we are all at the table together. So we got to mind our manners a little bit. And understand, it's just not about us. It's about others in this place too. And we defer, just like James would exhort us to do, put our personal preferences aside, even things that are okay for us to do. Like James says, Paul says, okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, but when you come to the table, don't do that because you don't want your other person, other brother to stumble. Because it's not about us. Here in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about being on time to church, and that will probably be a lot harder for some of you than what I just said. (laughs) Fast forward about 10, 15 years. Peter, who was there at the first Jerusalem council, he was the one that preached at Pentecost where 7,500, 8,000, give or take, came to Jesus in, in repentance and faith. And about 15 years later, he begins to write letters to the church. See, all those people who were there in Jerusalem, they were kind of pilgrims to Jerusalem for that week of Pentecost. Well, they eventually went back to their own homes. They took their language and their culture back to their original cities. And so when Peter writes his letters, First and Second Peter, he actually uh, names, many of the same regions that Luke names in Acts chapter 2. So Peter's saying, for those of you who were here at Pentecost who have now gone home, I want to instruct you and give you a couple of table manners when it comes to gathering at God's family table. And and 1 Peter chapter 2 is really an instruction to the church. It talks about us being a house and Jesus as the cornerstone. It talks about us coming together and it talks about us gathering as worshipers. And Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. There's the food metaphor again. You see it? That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's Peter saying? He's saying when we gather together at our family table, nourishment is the focus. Nourishment is the focus. This is about us coming together and receiving what we need, not always what we like. I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to hope to get amen. This is us coming together and receiving what we need, not always what we like. Some of you are like, I don't know about that, Lucas. <laughs> Do you, have you heard the word ookies before? Do you know what ookies is? Have you heard that word before? I know this word really, really well because my child asks for one breakfast, lunch, and dinner almost every day. It's a grilled cheese is what it is. Daddy, ookies, ookies. Daddy, ookies. And so every time she asks for one, I give her one, of course. No, I don't. No, I don't. I give her one sometimes because it's good for her to have bread. Maybe not cheese. I don't know. Like I use those Velveeta slices, you know, it's probably like not even real. Um, It's all chemicals. 
slowly embalming her just to save her future husband money. Um, When my mom watches this video after, she's going to be so mad at me. Woo! So listen, Amy, um, Amy cooked a great meal uh, last weekend, fantastic meal. Amy, Amy's a great cook. She cooked this roast beef, potatoes and carrots. We had a dessert. We had everything. It was all put out. It was wonderful, and it was a very nourishing meal. And Kaya came to the table, and she said, Daddy, ookies. Like, what do you do? You say, eat what your mama made. Like, you don't get an ookies. I'm the dad. Like, this is about nourishment. It's not about what you think you like. And sometimes, sometimes, men and women of God, you will get what you like in here. Sometimes you'll get a preaching style that you like. Sometimes you'll get a music style that you like. I just want to tell you, there will be a Sunday in December. You walk in this room, and you'll see two things on stage, an organ and a choir, and that's it. And for some of you, it's like, that's my ookies. That is where I live. Oh, it's fantastic. And it'll be great. It'll be great for me. I love it too. But you know what? It's not about what you like. Sometimes you'll get the ookies that you want. But listen, nourishment is the focus here. It's about us coming together in fellowship, the scripture, prayer, biblical preaching, encouraging one another so that we are nourished to do the work of the ministry. It's about nourishment. Paul, who was also there at that first Jerusalem council, would write some letters to the churches as well. He wrote first and second Corinthians. And, 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 the, and the church at Corinth, man, that church was a mess. For those of you who have read the, the, the letter to the Corinthians, like Paul, you know, he usually introduces himself and it's kind of a long introduction. And then he gets to kind of the meat of the letter. It's like Paul rushes through his introduction of himself in first Corinthians. He's like, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, like stop doing what you're doing. You've abandoned all table manners is what he gets to. So watch what Paul says to the church in 1 Corinthians. He says this. He says, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Now, Paul's talking about communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's table, whatever you call it, whatever background. He's talking about that. But that happened within the context of the agape feast in the first church. It happened within the context of the love feast. It happened within the context of this comprehensive corporate worship experience that the Christians were experiencing together. And so Paul is not just saying, hey, prepare yourself for communion. He's saying, prepare yourself for that whole worship experience. He's saying, when we gather at our family table, we come ready to eat. We come ready to eat. Like, I cleaned out my garage yesterday, and I found a lot of dead mice in my garage. It was really wonderful. It was great, because I was throwing them at Amy, and it was fantastic. No, that's not true. That's not true. And so, listen, if I would have cleaned my garage out and then come to the dinner table after having cleaned out my garage and sat down at Amy's table, what do you think she would have said to me? You get your rear end up, <laughs> and you go take a shower, and change your clothes, and then you come back and sit down at this table. She said, you don't come here not ready to eat. You come here ready to eat. You come here prepared. The same thing goes for us in corporate worship. When we come to the Lord's table, Paul says, examine yourself. Confess your known sin. Experience God's grace. Be ready to partake and receive. I see people in this room all the time, they actually come early to church, which is fascinating for some of you. You're like, wow, that is really a novel idea, early to church. And they spend 15 minutes just sitting in this room, preparing their hearts for worship. 
They pray. They get quiet before the Lord. And you know what's funny? The people who get the most out of this corporate worship experience that extract the most life and nourishment from this Sunday morning worship service are those that prepare themselves, are those that come ready to eat, are those that come expecting that God might feed me in and through his word, in and through worship, in and through the fellowship of believers. So come ready to eat when you come here. That means show up on time. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine, like the late thing. Look, like I have to put my Bible over here because nowhere does the Bible say you need to be on time to church. Actually, actually, you know what? Let's, let's look at this one. It, it kind of does. Uh, skip two. There you go. Uh, so here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. And you might be thinking to yourself, hey, that means you wait to start the service until I get here. No, that is not what that means. What it means is all of us together come before God. It's not just one of us individuals and you come, then you come, you come. This is about all of us. It's not about you. It's about all of us. So make an effort to be on time here, please, so we can all go before the throne together. And look, I have a two-year-old. I got up this morning and Amy left the house at like 6.30 or 7 or something because she had to be here for worship practice and all that stuff. So I'm like flying solo with Kaya, right? And, and here's the thing. As long as there's no permanent scarring, I feel like I succeeded when I, I'm just watching Kaya by myself. So it's very, very difficult with kids, Tyndale students. You guys have a long week. I know you typically don't wake up to like 2, two in the afternoon anyway. I mean, I, I know sometimes there's these like legitimate things or sometimes these accidental things that cause you to be late. I get it. But let's make an effort to be on time here because we all do this together. And we miss you when you're not here. This is about a family. It's not about you as an individual. It's about us together as a family. Here's the last thing that Paul says, and, and we'll close with this. He says, uh, at our family table, we act like family. Go back one. At our family table, we act like family. I, I, I want you to see exactly what Paul means by this because he, he runs through his, um, his introduction of himself in 1 Corinthians, and then he just gets after him right away. He's like, you are doing this, and you've abandoned all your table manners, and you're acting, you're sticking your brother in the eye with a fork and whatever else. Watch what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you. Stop poking your brother in the eye with a fork, is what he says. But that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What's he saying to the church? When you gather at the family table, you act like a family. You act like brothers and sisters in Christ, not divisions, not factions. Unify yourself around the essentials. Christ and him crucified, exalted over all. The Father's great love for us. Not, he's, in other letters, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul just says, don't get involved in these side conversations and squabbles and quarrels and gossip. You be unified and act like a family. This is so important all over the scripture. The scripture talks about unity in the body of Christ in 1 Peter 3 and John 13 and John 17, Acts 4, Philippians 2, Colossians 3, 1 John 4. Do I need to go on? Psalm 133, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. Do you want me to keep going? 
1 Corinthians 12, Galatians 3, all over the place. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus even says this. Now listen to how radical this is. Jesus says, you come to God's family table, you come to worship, you come to sacrifice, you come to commune with God, and you realize that your brother's got something against you. Now this is crazy, because whose fault is it if your brother has something against you? Their fault. They're the ones holding a grudge. It's not about you. Jesus says, you leave your sacrifice at the altar and go make it right. And in that day and age, they would be leaving a very expensive animal at the altar that would not have been good to sacrifice down the road. They would have, that money's gone. They would have had to make the journey all the way back to their hometown, 7, 14, 20 days back to their hometown to reconcile with the brother. Jesus says, you do it. Go make it right. Act like a family. And if you've got something between you and a brother, if there's some faction, division between you, as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. And if you can't do that, don't come here. I mean, he gets aggressive. That's not even me. That's Jesus talking. He just gets aggressive with this stuff. Why? Because when we come to God's family table, we act like family. Family doesn't come to the dinner table to evaluate mom's cooking. Family doesn't come to the dinner table to tell dad what he's doing wrong. Family doesn't come to the dinner table to hear some things from the brother. And so when brother walks away, they can talk behind brother's back. That's not what family does. Family comes and gathers together and says, despite what we may disagree about, what we know is that we're all family. So we act like it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I long for us to behave like a family. To be unified over the essentials, over the non-negotiables. To leave these petty disagreements and squabbles behind. And you know what I'm talking about. To start to welcome everyone to God's family table to make sure there's always an open seat for anyone who desires to taste and see that the Lord is good. To understand that this gathering is not about you, it's about us. To begin to realize that God does not want us to be a bastion of morality so that we can tell the world how wrong it is and how right we are. God wants us to be a family table where all can come and sit and partake. Today's just about table manners. Next four weeks, we'll be talking about all different kinds of stuff when it comes to interacting as the family of God. But today, we just started there. Would you join me in prayer? I've asked the band to come up and lead us in a closing song, so they're kind of making their, ways up, making their way up here, just with heads bowed and eyes closed. Here's, here's, here's my invitation couple of things. One, some of what I said today might have been hard for some of you. I get that. I get that my preaching can be bold and exhortative at some time, at some points, sometimes. But for some of us, it may be that God is calling us to repent. To repent of our pride to repent that our 
grubby little hands are closed tightly around preferences. And to let God pry our fingers loose and open up our hands so that we might receive from him what he desires to give to us in community. My humble invitation to you is just simply repent before God. You're not repenting before me, anything else. You're repenting before God. It's between you and God. Here's my second encouragement. Some of you know that there is something between you and another brother and sister, brother or sister in this room. And you know you need to make it right. I leave that to you. Make a commitment to make it right. Let's act like family. So God, as we bow our hearts before you, as we release our preferences and those secondary things, God, teach us to make this about you and about this family and not about us as individuals. Teach us to welcome any and all that might join us at this table. Teach us, God, to act like a family. Teach us unity. And oh God, break our hearts. Break our church. Strip us bare of all the things that we might have hung on to so that we hang on to you and you alone. So we raise our voices now. Jesus, we invite you, we ask you, we beg for you to be the center of our lives. And as we get to the end of this song, God, it's just so important, I think, that we sing this with voices joined together. Jesus, at the center of our church, may you be the centerpiece of this family table, oh God. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.